To everyone who is here present to the sound of my voice, grace to you and peace from God, our mother, father and parent and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you as we each bring our love, inclusion, humility, open heart and open mind in anticipation of a deeper understanding and relationship with our Creator. To our loving Redeemer who walks with us in the afternoon sun, in gratefulness we take a few moments in silence with you Lord. Let us be in reflection for a moment. Let us remember the times that you have been with us this week. Let us remember the time you have brought us together. And let us commit this space to you. Okay, I'm reading from uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18a. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Can I just say thank you to all those who have participated in leading us so far this morning and to Fifi for that beautiful opening prayer which echoed the words of the Bible reading. Thank you for that. In April 1963, 
Just 18 months after he preached in this building, the Baptist minister Martin Luther King was arrested and imprisoned in Birmingham, Alabama for coordinating a non-violent campaign to protest against racial segregation. Whilst in prison, initially writing in the margins on scraps of newspaper, King wrote what has become one of the most profound and pervasive defences against racial uh, I, 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 sorry, defences of the methods used by the civil rights movement against racial segregation. He was being critiqued by other Christians for uh, espousing non-violent direct action, non-violent breaking of the law. People were saying, no, 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 you should always work within the law. And in this letter from a Birmingham jail, he outlines his reasons as to why it is appropriate sometimes to break the law in a non-violent way uh, in order to raise an issue of profound injustice. So those other religious leaders who were urging that the case against racism should be made through the courts and the legal processes, he, he took them on because his understanding of the gospel of Christ was that it, it was what compelled him to advocate urgent uh, direct action to bring about justice for the oppressed black population, even if that action broke the law. It's often lost in the way Martin Luther King's story is told, that the motivation for all of this was his Christian faith. Um, I, I discovered when looking up his citation for the Nobel Peace Prize, it made no mention of his role as a Christian minister. And yet he was absolutely clear that what drove him, what compelled him, was the gospel of Christ. And he says in letter from a Birmingham jail, he says the following. The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. He goes on, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. And in response to the allegation against him that he was nothing but an extremist, well, he rises to the accusation, claiming the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? And I wonder if you, like me, can begin to hear echoes here of Paul's letter from a Roman jail, which we heard read earlier, as he wrote to his friends in Philippi, urging encouraging them, exhorting them to extreme works of love, to become single-minded and bold in their proclamation of the message of Christ's love for all without exception or barrier. But I'm also reminded of another letter written from a prison. This time it's not a prison in Rome in the first century 
or a jail in Birmingham, Alabama in the early 1960s. It's a cell in a concentration camp in Bavaria. And the author is the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Perhaps understandably, his thoughts have turned to issues of justice and unjust suffering. And in his prison letter, he says, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do, and more in the light of what they suffer. He goes on, we have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world in thought and action than personal good fortune. And then he concludes, the church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell people of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. And so we have these three prison letters, one from St. Paul, one from Martin Luther King, one from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, these three Christian pastor theologians writing in three very different contexts, one from the first century, two from the 20th century. And I think we find that they offer us parallel insights from these three different prison cells. I think they point us to the fact that the call of Christ on the church in any age is to pay attention to the voices of the suffering, the marginalized and the disempowered, to those excluded because of ethnicity or poverty or ideology or identity. Because in these voices, we hear the voice of our crucified saviour speaking to us through those we could so easily ignore. I'll say that again. If you want to hear the voice of the crucified saviour speaking to you, listen to the voices of those who suffer. So as we spend a little time this morning with the opening words of Paul's letter to the Philippians, I wonder if we can, in some sense, read his words through this lens of Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King, and thereby hear Paul's words from prison echo down into our own context, challenging us to single-mindedly pursue in our world the Christ call to works of love and justice and righteousness. What will it mean for us to hear this message in our context, in a world where still so many are excluded or marginalized, cut off from society, from the body of Christ, from one another. Well, this letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, as it is uh, most commonly known, uh, was actually written not just by Paul, but uh, by Paul and his friend Timothy. And it was written, uh, as we have heard, from prison, it's possibly the last letter we have from Paul before his death. Scholars are not quite certain on that, but there's a very good chance that the letter to the Philippians is the last thing Paul writes that survives before he is himself executed. 
Certainly it was written some years after the events of the founding of the church in Philippi, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago when we were in the book of Acts. Do you remember we heard about Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth, and the unnamed slave girl with the demon uh, of prophecy that was cast out of her? and the Philippian jailer who was going to kill himself because the gates had been flung open in, of the prison in, in the earthquake, but when he found Paul and the others were still there, he and his family were converted. Well, those, those early Christians in Philippi, Lydia, the unnamed slave girl, if she ended up joining the church, we don't really know, but she might have done, and the Philippian jailer and his family, those and others who had joined them in that city formed the core of the church in Philippi to whom Paul is now writing some years later from a prison cell probably in Rome. And the letter as we read it through begins in the normal way for a first century letter, it begins by naming the authors. These days our convention is of course to sign off at the end of a letter, you know, yours sincerely, Simon Woodman. But in those days, you put your name at the top so the readers would know straight away who was writing to them. And it's noteworthy, I think, that Paul uses his Greek name here rather than his Hebrew name, Saul. And in this, he's following the pattern that we can see in the book of Acts, which is that as his life moves uh, from the, being a, a Jewish leader within the religion of Judaism towards his mission to the Greek-speaking world, he leaves behind him the name Saul and starts using his Greek name Paul. It seems issues of race and identity are always in the background to human relations and that this was as true in the first century as it is in the 20th and 21st century. Paul has to adopt a new name for a new context. I know many people who have come to this country and have found that uh, in England we find it hard to say certain names and pronounce certain things. And I get people who say to me, well, this is my English name. Uh, you won't pronounce my, my, my native name properly, so please don't. And I, I just, you know, you can hear that, that reality of Paul's life. Uh, echoing through here with the fact that he introduces himself in this letter as Paul. And anyway, after the standard opening, our two authors, Paul and Timothy, then describe themselves in a way that is quite unusual. They say that they are slaves of Christ Jesus. And here, I think we have to pause. Because we can't hear the word slave in a sermon that has already mentioned Martin Luther King, without also hearing an echo of the evils of the race-based enslavement of so many people that lay behind the racial segregation and injustices against which Martin Luther King protested and for which he was arrested and a consequence of which in the end led to his assassination. And whilst it is true that many of those who led the movement for the abolition of slavery were Christians, there is also a despicable story to be told of white Christian complicity in the enslavement of black Africans. And it is also true that the Christian church today continues to be complicit in and benefit from those racist structures in society 
that perpetuate the disempowerment of black and brown people in Western society. If you want to know more about this, can I encourage you to have a read of the display boards in the foyer and to come along on Wednesday evening for the premiere screening of this new documentary, After the Flood, which explores in more detail this story of Christianity and particularly white Christianity and slavery. And also begins to look at the ongoing legacy of racism and structural oppression in our society and our world. Further details can be found in the weekly news email, uh, including the link to buy your ticket, or you can go to our website. So, given this lens of racial oppression and enslavement, offered to us by Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, what are we then to make of Paul's description of himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ? Well, firstly, I, I don't think that our Pew Bibles attempt to soften this by reframing it as servants of Christ. Helps us very much. Um, in Greek, the word is clearly slave. Uh, doulos Christu. Slave of Christ. And also because, I mean, servants, historically speaking, are also recipients of oppression and in many ways have experienced life in economic enslavement, even if it is not politically mandated enslavement. So I don't think we can sidestep this into a trite homily on servant leadership as exemplified by Paul, a slave of Christ. Rather, we have to go through this. It is uncomfortable language of slavery. And I think it was uncomfortable in the first century too. I don't think Paul is intending to do anything here other than raise some really deep questions about human identity and how we see ourselves before God. Well, the key thing I think for Paul here in his use of this language of enslavement appears to be the issue of ownership. Who owns you? In the ancient world, in the first century, where slavery was widespread, Roman society was broadly divided into two classes of people. Either you were enslaved, or you owned or benefited from those who were enslaved. That was pretty much it. And Paul, as a Roman citizen from birth, would have found himself the beneficiary of this equation. We have no indication that he personally owned slaves, although it may be that his family had done so. But certainly he would have benefited from and profited from the enslavement of others throughout his life. In those days, slavery was not so much demarcated on one's skin colour, but there was still a very clear line down the middle of Roman society and you fell on one side of that line or the other. And in our world too, I think we face a division within society. On the one hand, there are some who by virtue of their birth have inherited the oppression 
caused by the structures and systems of racism in ways which limit their lives, opportunities and circumstances. It is just true that that is the case. And conversely, on the other hand, there are those who, by virtue of their birth, have inherited the privileges given by the structures and systems of racism in ways which enhance their lives, opportunities and circumstances. And in our world, it's largely focused around how your skin colour and heritage map against the European empires of the last four or five hundred years, and particularly against the economics attached to the transatlantic slave trade. The context from the first to the 21st centuries may be different, but it also has striking similarities, particularly around disparities of opportunity and liberty based on an imperial legacy of violent conquest and individual circumstances of birth. So what does it mean for Paul? A man born with privilege, a Roman citizen, to name himself as a slave of Christ. Why did he do this? Well, as I said, it's primarily a statement about ownership. In the ancient Roman world, Everyone in the empire was actually owned. Everyone, slave or free, was owned ultimately by the emperor. For some people, that was an opportunity and a privilege. For others, it was a cause of oppression and disadvantage. But by describing himself as a slave of Christ, Paul was consciously aligning himself with another authority. It was an act of rhetorical rebellion. Every bit as compelling, I would suggest, as that articulated so brilliantly by Martin Luther King in his letter from a Birmingham jail. The point Paul is making is clear. If Paul is owned by Christ, then he is not owned by the emperor. And this means that he is no longer bound to live according to the rules of the empire. He is free from the compulsion to comply. And as we know from elsewhere in his life and ministry, this leads him into acts of illegal, direct, nonviolent resistance. He often finds himself imprisoned. We heard only a couple of weeks ago about his torture and beating and imprisonment in Philippi. He can and does speak and act in ways that I am sure both Bonhoeffer and King would recognize as subversive resistance to the systems of power in his world. You see, by naming himself as a slave of Christ, Paul is putting out there that he has a different master now. One who compels him to live by different rules. And I wonder what it might mean for us in our world to take seriously what it would mean to declare ourselves slaves of Christ. I have news for you. You are owned. 
All of us are owned. We are owned by the powers of our society. We are owned by our possessions, some of us. We are owned by our money, some of us. We are owned by systems that have dictated because of our skin color. We are advantaged or disadvantaged. We do not have in and of ourselves the ability to step outside of the ownership that society, that the structures of society put upon us except and unless I wonder if we declare ourselves slaves of Christ. What might it mean for us if we have inherited privilege and advantage to reject those systems? That can't have been easy for Paul. Much easier to step into his Roman citizenship Fight the fight from the inside. And he does that sometimes. As we saw in Philippi a couple of weeks ago, he claimed Roman citizenship and that got him out of, out of prison. There is a time for using your privilege for good. But there is also a time, as Paul discovered to his cost, for setting it aside and identifying with another master. What might it mean for us to act and speak in ways that are subversive to the unquestioned assumptions of society where some are born free and others are born enslaved, where some are born privileged and others inherit oppression? I think in our time, in 2022, this certainly in terms of the issue of racism and the heritage of the transatlantic slave trade, needs to begin to focus around the question of reparations. This is decisive action taken to address the imbalances wrought by former generations, but which continue to blight people's lives in the present. The recent visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge to Jamaica in celebration of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee was disrupted by protests as people took the opportunity to press their case for not only an apology from the British but also for reparations for subjecting the island to colonial rule and slavery. This is a live issue and it is an issue of justice and freedom. An open letter to the royal family and the British government signed by 100 Jamaican leading academics, politicians and cultural figures and made public on the occasion of the royal visit said the following. We are of the view that an apology for British crimes against humanity, including but not limited to the exploitation of the indigenous people of Jamaica, the transatlantic trafficking of Africans, the enslavement of Africans, indentureship and colonization is necessary to begin a process of healing, forgiveness, reconciliation and compensation. I am heartened at the amount of money that has already been committed to the rebuilding of Ukraine when the opportunity comes for that to happen. And I am absolutely supportive of attempts to bring Putin's regime to justice on this and hold them account for the evils that they are wreaking in that country. Do not get me wrong on that. 
But if we are taking that seriously, why are we not taking seriously the parallel wrongs that our society wrought against other people on the basis of skin colour generations before we were born, which have never been addressed? A few years ago, I went to hear Professor Vereen Shepherd give the Baptist Union Sam Sharp lecture. This is a lecture that Bloomsbury supports financially. Um, at the Jamaican High Commission here in London. And she spoke strongly in favour of a Christian case for reparations. The annual lecture series is named after Sam Sharp, who was both an enslaved Jamaican and a Baptist deacon. And he played an important role in the great Jamaican slave revolt of 1831-2. He was one of the leaders of a group of enslaved people who took part in a sit-down strike against slavery and for sitting down and refusing to work he and more than 500 others were executed by a british-backed colonial force in professor shepherd's lecture she explored the substantive contribution that black women made in the campaign for freedom and rights in the colonial Caribbean, demonstrating from her research that, that anti-slavery activism is not the preserve of males. And there is important work to be done in recovering the black male and female contribution to the fight against slavery. Uh, we have a little picture in the room back there, um, which is showing a, an anti-slavery uh, protest here in the UK in, I think, the 1840s. Uh, William Brock, the founder minister of this church, is present at it, which is why we've got it there. It is a sea of white faces, and there is much to celebrate in white Christian activism against the slave trade. Don't get me wrong, but when that whitewashes the contribution of those who stood up as enslaved people, men and women, fighting the cause as those who had suffered from it, then we rather miss the point. And we're back, are we not, at Bonhoeffer saying we have to listen to the voices of those who suffer if we are to hear the voice of Christ. Professor Shepherd also called for reparations for all those impacted by the horrors of colonialism, something which Wale Hudson Roberts, friend to this church and racial justice enabler for the Baptist Union, grounds in the writing of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spoke of what he called cheap grace. A quote from Wale, he says, reparations is the antithesis of cheap grace. Reparations call for an enduring commitment to the other, one that emerges from the inner recesses of our hearts. Reparations are a genuine outcome of repentance, seeking to make collective recompense for collective violation, perpetrated over years and sometimes decades of systemic violence. And so I wonder if those of us who would want to join with Paul and Timothy in identifying ourselves as slaves of Christ can hear the wisdom of our three imprisoned letter writers this morning, calling down the years for us to ground our lives and actions in the overriding call of Christ, to live in love and with love towards all, to do so with knowledge and full insight, as we determine what is best and pursue the harvest of righteousness that comes in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, Simon. Um, we're now going to have a panel discussion. So just have a little moment of silence while I ask uh, the panelists to come up. My lovely panelists. You can take this mic. You want to Does anyone want to start with some thoughts on today's salmon? Or I'm going to pick on someone. Probably you because you're in the middle. Okay. Um, so I found that really interesting. Thank you, Simon. Uh, the reflection of the, the themes that seem so pervasive through centuries and that are still existing as problems that we face globally today and um, the, the need to, to try and listen to people who are suffering and to, to seek out those people who are marginalized and oppressed that are not necessarily very visible and we need to, to actively try and hear things that it would be more comfortable to, to not hear. Hard, but without doing that, how do we how do we seek to, to help? Um, when Simon was saying his sermon, I was thinking about all my senses, and um, he mentioned a lot about hearing. And sometimes I find that I can hear somebody, but I'm not taking it in and I'm not listening to what they have to say, especially when it's something that is hard for me to understand. And um, Simon's sermon, um, I found that sometimes when people are oppressed, you just have to choose to listen and make the effort to understand. And I find that um, if you are blessed to have your hearing, um, you have to actually make an effort to listen and understand and even if and maybe even try and help those who are oppressed um, yeah i think picking up on that what struck me is we often think oh things are so much better than they were there is no slave trade we're not racist it's illegal for employers to pay, pay black people less than they pay white people or pay women less than they pay men. We can often think because steps have been made towards equality, that, that's it, we've done, we're, everything's fine. And I think we, we need to be ready to hear, like, like, like Nick we've said, to hear and listen when people talk about disadvantage, when people talk about how hard it is for them. And that's, that's difficult because sometimes we can feel proud. We, we might perhaps as a church feel very proud of the work we've done on inclusion over race and all sorts of other things, but I'm sure there's more to go. And it can feel quite uncomfortable if someone speaks up and says, I don't feel included because of this, or things are done in this way, which naturally makes it difficult for me to join in. And that's really hard. It, it's, it's uncomfortable. And it can be easy to be dismissive and say, well, you know, we're, 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 trying, to, we're trying to do stuff. It's easy perhaps to, to just wallow in some sort of guilty angst. So, you know, if we're talking about race, then 
and clearly I'm in a privileged position uh, as a white person in this country and I, I might think oh well oh it's all so terrible what can I do I'm not a racist the whole system's so bad we have to listen and then we have to say what can we do and we have to do it and be ready to do it and that's hard Um, I just wanted to say uh, something as well, because uh, I was so happy to hear about Jamaica, my country, and I was so happy when they wrote that letter, because I really, like, Jamaican independence is such an oxymoron, like, it just is uh, so much needs to happen as far as repatriations, but um, one of the things that Simon said that really kind of struck me was when when he was talking about you see Christ in suffering, I think that a lot of people can be complacent because they don't see it in, uh, in like what is given to them. If how he was saying how people are like slaves to objects, maybe you're a slave to your phone and you look at your phone all the time, like me, but your Facebook page, you know, your faith, what you see, what's given to you is what's given to you individually. It's not what everyone sees. You have to go out of your way to find something that is uncomfortable. You have to go out of your way to find, listen to stories of suffering and things like that. If I speak to people now about how they are deporting people back to Jamaica who have like never really been there before and, you know, people are getting deported to Rwanda and things like that. So many people don't know about these things. They're happening right now. And it's because they're, they're only choosing media that is comfortable for them. And so we have to really, when we want to hear the suffering, it's not what is just in our peripheral. We have to go and find, find these people and understand and read their stories. Um, that's just something that struck me. But um, thank you, thank you everyone for your thoughts and thank you everyone for uh, taking that in with an open mind um, and open heart. This week I read um, Ecclesiastes 3 again and thought how apt it is for our lives. It was brought into the mainstream when it was sung by the Limewriters and also by Pete Seeger and much paraphrased, it contains work, words like there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to be silent and a time to speak, etc. So I'm using some of these thoughts in the prayers today. So let's pray. Loving Lord, we come to you this morning to pray for our congregation and the world around us, looking to the words of King Solomon to try and make sense of the seasons of our lives. In our midst, we have a baby about to be born, and we have those who are struggling with illness and infirmity, and we bring them all to you in prayer. In our midst, we have those whose lives are tranquil, and those whose lives have been turned upside down and who need your reassurance that they have a future and a hope. We unite in prayer for Ukraine, Yemen,
and the other war-torn countries and pray that there will be a time when weeping and mourning will cease. We ask for wisdom and knowing when to speak out against injustice. And particularly today, we think of racial injustice. And in our own relationships, we ask for wisdom and knowing when to speak and when to be silent. Lord, as we begin another week, help us to rest in the assurance that you walk with us through the seasons of our lives. Amen. Let us go from this place as a mirror reflecting God's love out into the world. Amen.